0: Given the state of the world right now, it's probably fair to say that a whole lot of us are currently lost in a downward spiral of doom scrolling, utterly overwhelmed by the news. But my guest on the podcast today says things have been bad like this for some time. That in fact, our civilization is in a form of decline.
1: I worry that this idea that we had, that we're just sort of keep progressing, things are gonna keep getting better, was misguided. And mm. it's only looking backwards you realize it's like a bad relationship, right? You know when you're in a bad relationship and you start to of think, well, when did this go wrong, right? You're trying to look backwards. It's only in retrospect you realize, oh yeah, it hasn't been good for two, three, four years. And I think that's sort of where we're at now, where we're starting to look back and say, you know, it's been a while since things were any good.
0: Andrew Potter is an associate professor at the Max Bell School of Public Policy at McGill University. He's the former editor-in-chief of the Ottawa Citizen, a former public affairs columnist for Maclean's Magazine, and a former director of the McGill Institute for the Study of Canada. His latest book is On Decline, Stagnation, Nostalgia, and Why Every Year is the Worst One Ever. Andrew Potter joins me today for a surprisingly upbeat conversation about the state of our country and of our world. Andrew, welcome to Lean Out.
1: Thanks. It's good. It's great to be here.
0: Great to have you. I want to start with a striking paragraph near the opening of the book. You are arguing that each year since 2016 has gotten progressively worse. When you get to 2020... You list off events, including the American drone strike killing Soleimani, which inflamed tensions, the tragedy regarding the Ukrainian Airlines flight, the Australian wildfires, the death of Kobe Bryant, the wet sweat and blockades. And then you point out that all of this happened by the end of February. Right. <laughs> just astonishing. Yeah. So what comes next, of course, is a global pandemic, the killing of George Floyd, mass unrest. A national emergency in Canada followed the day after the Emergencies Act was lifted by Russia invading Ukraine. What point in this cycle did you start thinking deeply about decline? And at what point did you realize you were right?
1: Yeah, it's funny. So the book got commissioned in the sort of middle of the pandemic, about eight months into it. And it took me a while to write it, kind of wrote it and then kind of restarted and rewrote the whole thing, partly because things were moving so fast. And it was hard because I was trying to write something that was sort of telling a big picture, right? But it was also hooked to current events, right? So there was all that problem. And then when I finally submitted the manuscript, they said, you know, we're going to hold off until September. And because I'd submitted the manuscript in like May or no, March, I think. And I was like, no, 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 Mike, because vaccines are coming, right? And I said, look, it's going to be totally obsolete by September. The pandemic's going to be over. The economy's going to be booming. Everyone's going to be totally happy, right? And they were (laughs) like, well, but if it comes out in June, it's not going to be any good. And then, so I was like, okay, it's your funeral, right? Like, uh, I get paid either way. And then it came out in September. And like the week it came out, Afghanistan collapsed, right? The Americans pulled out and the Taliban returned to Afghanistan. And then Delta, Delta wave started. Literally the week it came out, right? Delta. And I was like, okay, well, we got a little boost here. And then the book got optioned by Serbia, of all places, a Serbian edition for, for January. I was like, oh, January, it's going to come out in the summer. It's going to be over. And then just more stuff kept happening, right? And now it's coming out in France and they want me to like update like an entire, their whole book. They want like 5,000 more words on it. Anyway, all of which is to say that things seem to be getting worse faster than than I ever would have anticipated. And part of it's, yeah, look at me, I'm right. But also it's surprising because the story of the book is one of sort of gradual sort of erosion, decline as a sort of gradual process. Mm. And I'm starting to wonder if, you know, that's not the way things work, right? It's like that old joke about how did you go bankrupt, right? Slowly and then suddenly all at once, right? How did your civilization come to an end? Well, very slowly and then suddenly, you know, in the span of about two years. Mm -hmm. So I'm wondering if that's sort of what's going on here. Mm
0: -hmm. Well, to set this up for listeners, can you just, in a nutshell, just give us the basic argument of the book and then we'll start pulling threads.
1: Yeah. So the argument of the book is that, Decline is essentially a political process. That is, you know, Hollywood sort of tells us that decline or the apocalypse happens when like the moon explodes or aliens arrive or there's some big earthquake or, you know, the day after tomorrow, right? You know, the climate disaster, something like that. But there's this line from Amartya Sen, the the economist, right? About famines, where famines have environmental causes, but they're always and everywhere a political phenomenon, right? It's because of failures of politics. And I think that's essentially what I'm arguing in the book is that there are factors that go into our decline, environmental factors and symptoms or inability to deal with climate change and our inability to deal with, you know, depopulation of, you know, all the bugs are disappearing and the environment and so on. But essentially, it's the combination of a handful of things, including economic stagnation, economic and technological stagnation, right? The Sort of the eating up of a lot of the low-hanging fruit that had been sitting there for about 150 years, combined with political strangulation is the term that I sort of borrow from a writer where to go along with the economic and technological sort of natural sort of exhaustion of a lot of low-hanging fruit, we've strangled the economy in regulations and essentially political knots. And then when you stir into this the forces and the catalyzing and, you know, toxic influences of social media and so on, what you get is an inability to resolve sort of the collective action problems that arise in in a modern society and that sort of keep us moving forward in progress. And so decline is essentially the inability to resolve the collective action problems that we face and that are sort of the base of civilization.
0: And you say at one point that if one were to go to sleep in the 70s and wake up 50 years later, That things would be, you know, stagnant, stalled. In fact, some cases have gone backwards. Can you explain that?
1: Yeah, so it's not a new observation. I sort of borrowed from a few people, but it's this idea that if you start in, say, like 1820, right, and were to go to sleep for 50 years, every 50 years, 1820, 1870, 1920, 1970, right, you're waking up into, like, a completely remade world. Right. Like it's just like crazy. Right. And you hear these stories about people who like, you know, your great grandmother who like, you know, was born in a barn with an outhouse and now like, you know, lives in a condominium and whatever. You hear these stories all the time. And the thing about the difference between 1970 and say 2020 is not that much changed. Right. Yeah, sure. We've got like computers. Right. We carry the entire wealth of humanity around in our phones and so on. But computers existed in 1970. Right. All that's happened is transistors got really small. Right. And the logic of network computing sort of continued on its own. Like the Internet existed in 1970. And in a lot of ways, things have actually gone backwards, right? Like dishwasher is worse than it was. Your fridge, like household appliances are worse than they were. They don't work as well. They might be more efficient, right? But that's part of the whole strangulation thing where we sacrificed, you know, effectiveness and usefulness for some broader broader understanding of what efficiency amounts to. And so essentially... We sort of see ourselves as living in this age of miracle and wonder, right? It's like the line from the old Paul Simon song, right? It's like there's miracle and wonder everywhere, but there's also barbarism at the gates, right? There's like, it's a world of humongous amounts of barbarism. And I worry that that sort of balance, right, this idea that we had that we're just sort of keep progressing, things are going to keep getting better, was misguided. And it's only looking backwards, you realize it's like a bad relationship, right? You know, when you're in a bad relationship, and you start to think, when did this go wrong, right? You're trying to look backwards. It's only in retrospect, you realize, oh, yeah, it hasn't been good for two, three, four years. And I think that's sort of where we're at now, where we're starting to look back and say, you know, it's been a while since things were any good.
0: Mm -hmm. It is so political. I mean, things have become so polarized, so tribal, so bogged down in this culture war. And there's been this kind of key swap between the left and the right, which I think is confusing a lot of people. Walk me through your thinking on that. Yeah.
1: So the first book I ever wrote or co-wrote was a book called The Rebel Cell, which came out in 2004. Now I can't believe how long ago it was, right? That I wrote with my colleague, Joe Heath. I was a philosopher at U of T. And in that book, we essentially sort of dissect the way countercultural politics had been working since the 1960s, right? That 40-year period where there were sort of two forces, right? There's the people who believed that, you know, there ought to be a law, and the people who believed that it was a free country, right? And that was sort of the basic dynamic, right? Like when mm-hmm. I was a kid growing up, it's like there were people who said there ought to be a law. We called them conservatives, and there were people who said it's a free country, right? We called those like people leftists or liberals, and. That basic dynamic between people who believed in rules and order and conformity and so on, and the rejection of that, right, was what we called sort of the countercultural reaction against conformity. And the counterculture was always on the left, right? To reject conformity, to reject authority, to like stick it to the man or uh, kick out the jams, or whatever, right? That was a very left-wing phenomenon. And, you know, when I was in in university, the conservatives were like the people, like the social conservatives of Pat Buchanan types, right? The people who are all about, you know, law and order and rules and so on, right? You know, it's like the movie Footloose, right? Where you got like the religious people who don't want you to dance and the lefties just want to dance. So (laughs) that was the architecture of the universe, right? The right wing were squares and the lefts were rebels. And starting about like about 10 years ago, but really taking hold when Steve Bannon took over and started running the show for conservatives and Republicans in the United States, they completely inverted that. And what's happened now is the left are the forces of conformity and, you know, authoritarianism, right, rules about, you know, what you can say and when you can say it and so on. And the right reacted by going full counterculture, Right. And where they just simply reject all norms, right? All basic social norms about how to behave, how to talk, you know, what words you can use and what you can say. And so you have the situation now where the forces of counterculture or rebellion are all on the right. And you saw it with the trucker rally in Ottawa, right, where this is like a scene you would have seen 40 years ago on the left is now the right doing this. And the left is sort of going, oh, my God, right, you know, there ought to be a law, there needs to be, you know, an Emergencies Act and so on, you know, some of which I agree with, right. I'm not an anarchist and I'm not there with the conservatives, but the dynamic is really interesting where the forces of chaos and nihilism and rejection of authority and rules and so on is all on the right. And the left is sort of trying to hold things together with increasingly strident forms of social control.
0: Mm. And you call the left the control left.
1: Yeah. So I I stole that from somebody. I thought it was Andrew Coyne. I have this riff, right? We call it the control left and the alt right, right? Sort of based on your computer keyboard. And it's not mine. It's very clever. And it was somebody in the United States who coined it, apparently. I can't remember his name. I thought it was Andrew Coyne. He says it wasn't him. But I think it's really useful, right? Because you do have this dynamic between the alt right, which is all about rejection of rules and the control left, which is increasingly trying to set rules on what you can say, where you can say it and the circumstances under which it can be said.
0: Another issue that you draw attention to is the the failure of reason and rationality, in part because of the logic digital culture, but also because of the built environment, which you liken to a casino. Can you elaborate on that?
1: Yeah. So if you've ever been in a casino... It's kind of weird, right? Because first time I went into a casino, it's was like, you know, where's all the dames in sexy dresses and the men in tuxedos, right? Like, where's the high chandeliers and the tinkling piano, right? It wasn't like that. It was like dark and the low ceilings and it's like noisy. It's like being at a midway, right? And you realize like, and you get lost. You have no idea what time it is. You never know where you are. And you realize it's just a machine for taking money from you, right? There's like flashing lights and there's, you know, all this stuff going on. And the whole thing is designed to short circuit your rational thinking, right? And get you to sort of like put money in a slot machine or throw some money down on a table or what have you. And everyone knows that about casinos, which is why they always tell you all these rules, right? Don't take the free drinks, take only as much money as you're willing to lose. And once you've lost it, walk out, right? There's all these sort of like pre-commitment rules they tell you. Well, what's happened is both the online environment and our built environment have just simply realized you can take the logic of the casino and apply it to Costco, to Ikea, right? To every website is basically a casino. When you go on, there's flashing lights, there's ads, there's shiny people, there's click here, do that. And all of that is a mechanism for essentially triggering... What behavior psychologists call your System One dispositions, your System One responses. These are the instinctive, intuitive, quick-firing decisions that your body or your brain is used to making. Because back in the day, right, and millions of eons ago on the African savanna, you had to make a quick decisions about friend or foe, about you know whether that animal's coming to kill you or coming, or that you can eat it and all that. And as a result, everywhere we go virtually in the world, virtually or really in real life, your ability to reason and think critically about what you're doing, why you're there, how much you're going to spend, what you're going to do, what you're going to say is being short-circuited by, you know, devices or institutions, real or virtual, aimed at short-circuiting that. And so we've turned the whole world into basically a casino where everyone's sort of running around stupefied.
0: (laughs) Which really stuck with me because one of the things that drives me so crazy about the present moment is just how little makes sense. Like yeah. you just can't make it make sense.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, look at, and this has become obvious to anyone who uses Google, Amazon, eBay, any of these things, right? These things used to be really useful. And now like eBay is just ads, right? There's somebody has been doing the math on this stuff, right? And something like 90% of anything you see on an Amazon page is an ad, a disguised ad of some kind, right? eBay, the same thing, right? Google, the same thing. These things have become completely useless. The sheer decline of the internet as a functional environment, setting aside social media, right? Just set aside the things you want to do, right? You want to find information, you want to do whatever. It's shocking just how bad everything has got. And we keep thinking, well, maybe it'll get better, right? Why do we think that, right? What evidence do we have that any of this is going to get reversed, right? Once you've realized that the human psychology can be hacked in a way that sort of undermines reason and promotes disreason, that's just going to keep going, right? And it's made its way into our politics, it's made its way into our education system, it's made its way everywhere. It's hard to be positive about it because it's hard to see how it gets fixed or how we go back.
0: Mm-hmm. Before we get to COVID, you also mentioned the concept of luxury belief, something I first read about from the writer Rob Henderson. Can you define yeah. that and how that applies here?
1: Yeah, Rob Henderson's really interesting, right? Like, I don't know how I came across him, maybe through Quillette or something like that, right? And he's young and, you know, he'd be called, you know, intellectual dark web or something like that by the people who are into that kind of stuff. I don't know what his his real, where he sort of fits politically. But he coined this term luxury beliefs, which is in a lot of ways a riff off, I don't know if you've read the book, but it's similar to the kind of arguments that Joe Heath and I were making in The Rebel Cell, right? About how a lot of the so-called political stances people take are actually disguised forms of status-seeking, right? Like, cool, right? Trying to be cool, as we argue in the rebel cell, is just a form of status-seeking. But cool people always kind of were like, well, I'm political, right? You know, I don't go with the man. I do it my own way, right? And what Henderson argues is he sort of he sort of ratchets it up a bit. And he says, look, there are things that people believe and viewpoints they adopt that are luxury beliefs. And they're luxury in two senses. One, in the sense that they don't cost you anything to hold them right? It's a luxury in that real sense, right? It's, it's something you get to sort of surround yourself with and have. It doesn't cost you anything, but it has genuine costs on other people down the status totem pole, right? And the examples he uses, he uses a lot of them from education, right? like Because he talks a lot. I think he came from, he was adopted, I believe, or and he came from sort of a lower class home. And when he ended up, I think he went to Yale. He said the students end up, they, were, they use a lot of language and jargon and so on that he didn't really understand that was... Aimed at ostensibly very political, but only served to marginalize and create an in group, out group situation between those mm-hmm. who were in the know with that kind of lingo and those who weren't. And as he talks about luxury beliefs, and I agree entirely, the costs of those are borne by people lower down the totem pole. Mm-hmm. Right? All these luxury beliefs that people believe, and a lot of woke politics is a form of luxury belief. right? It's stuff that people can adopt, viewpoints they can have, policies they can promote, which have genuine costs on the lower classes.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Let's turn our attention now to COVID and the handling of the COVID pandemic, particularly in this country, which you argue is really kind of a wide-scale failure of our institutions. Walk me through how your thesis on decline relates to this.
1: Yeah, so it's interesting. It's a chapter that I probably have to rewrite entirely now because of how much evolved. But one of the most striking things about the response to COVID, especially in that first year was how variable it was between countries right some countries did super well and some countries did really bad and you know countries like korea did really well taiwan did really well australia seemed to be doing really well and they seem to be doing well because they seem to have their act together from a large scale societal, strategic, logistical point of view. Like, I mean, Korea famously, right? South Korea famously implemented tracking apps. And, you know, they, they had this whole system of test, trice, isolate using tracking apps. They were able to sort of control and snuff out outbreaks and so on. Whereas a country like Canada seemed to struggle with simply basic things, right? Like having enough PPE, getting enough tests going. But what the Canadian government seemed to be able to do was spend a lot of money right, pay people to stay home and pass rules about, you know, where you could go and what you couldn't do, right? But beyond that, there was very little in the way of proactive strategic management of the pandemic, right? For instance, the contact tracing app that Canada tried to do, right, ended up being completely useless, right? First, the provinces were, were building their own and they couldn't get it to work. And then Canada brought it with their own federal one in and it never got used. Now they don't even update it, right? And everything seemed to be slow and bad. And so how does this relate to my thesis? Well, the thesis is something like this, that one of the symptoms of decline in a society and then what ends up becoming one of the causes of decline is when you become a society basically devoted to arguing over luxury beliefs. That is, things don't matter. That is, what you believe doesn't really matter. Because the lights stay on and, you know, the gas keeps flowing to your car and the food keeps coming, right? And so you can believe all kinds of crazy things on the right and the left. You know, you can be like the biggest Gwyneth Paltrow goopist you want, right? And you can be the most nutcase or conspiracy theorist, right? But none of that matters, right? The world keeps turning until your beliefs start to matter, right? And there are countries out there. Where it kind of mattered what the politicians and the people in place believed, right? Like Israel, like Australia, like Taiwan, like Korea, right? These are countries where national security, defense, you know, getting stuff done and making sure things work and making third procedures are in place for protecting your citizens so on, mattered. Whereas in Canada, a country like Canada, it never really mattered. It hasn't mattered for 40, 50 years, And so we could have a country that sort of ran on Instagram and, you know, fancy socks that Justin Trudeau seems obsessed with. Right. Because ultimately, what does it matter? Right. And I'm picking on the prime minister because he's prime minister right now. But the Conservatives have been no better. Right. Putting up an endless parade of milk guzzling, you know, leaders who who have no real views other than to pandering to the populist. Right. So that's a symptom of decline. Right. When your politics becomes entirely about status jockeying between different kinds of luxury beliefs and not how your beliefs, you know, hook onto the world. And Canada's paying the price of that. Right. And we paid the price in the pandemic and we're paying the price right now with uh, what's going on in Ukraine.
0: Mm -hmm. And let's let's uh, let's get to Ukraine in a moment. But with the trucker dispute, I mean, what warning do you think this sends to us? What do we need to be thinking about going forward? This was squashed for sure, but the sentiment surely lingers.
1: Yeah, yeah, it hasn't gone anywhere. Look, starting when Trump got elected, a lot of people, pundits, academics, me, right, started asking the question, right, could it happen here? Right? That was everywhere, right? Could populism come to Canada? I ran a conference at McGill called Are We Good or Are We Lucky? Right? And it was about populism. And is it because there's something in the water here, are we doing something right to keep populism? Do we have policies, do we have institutions, do we have procedures, or are we just lucky, right? And the answer that came out of that was kind of a bit of both right? That we have, we have a, a better electoral system for moderating these kind of things that we have. Our immigration system is more open and fluid than other countries. But ultimately, Canada is very lucky, right? We've got the United States below us, three oceans, not a lot of threats. We don't have you know, the 16 million illegal immigrants the United States does, right? There's a whole lot of things we're just lucky about. But the idea that Canada was, in some sense, a beacon to the world really grabbed hold, right? There were all these articles written about Canada being the last multiculturalism country standing, right? The Canadian exceptionalism sort of became this very rote phrase to the point where in January of this year, on the anniversary of the uprising, January 6th in the United States, the Globe and Mail ran an entire section on its Saturday about is America going to fall apart this year and what will become of Canada, Right. What will become of like, you know, naive, innocent Canada as this crazy country down to the south falls apart. Right. Two weeks later. Right. Kaboom. Right. And so, you know, two weeks later, the borders blocked. The nation's capital is is occupied. the Homeland Security Department is basically suggesting very politely that maybe they might need to help. And I remember reading the Globe and Mail section and thinking, this is so crazy, right? Like, are they not looking around and seeing what's going on in Canada, right? If you would pick which country is is more likely to be overrun by uh, radical populists, which country is more likely to fall apart politically, it's Canada, right? It's obviously Canada. And populism has been alive and well here for a very long time. And so this is a very long answer to saying that the lesson from the trucker rally is it's been here, it's been burbling for a long time, and it's not going anywhere.
0: Why do you say, obviously, Canada?
1: Because the United States survived a civil war, right? The civil war essentially made the United States one country. And the New will tell you, oh, we're very divided and so on, right? But everyone in the United States see themselves as in one sense or another, the owner and the defender of the constitution. They have different views on the constitution, right? But they all own it. Where Canada has like, a massive separatist problem in Quebec, a massive separatist problem in Alberta, an occasional but very real uh, alienation problem in Newfoundland, right? The difference, Canadian populism manifests itself as regionalism, disaffection from the center. And a lot of people will think, oh, that's not populism. Yeah, it is. And, you know, feeling like alienated from the country and that you so much so that you should just go form your own country, right? That's a form of populism, right? And I think that, people didn't realize that. But I think that the fragility of the federal state is a symptom of populist influences here in Canada, right? Legault is a populist, right? Jason Kennedy is a populist, right? It's been here and it manifests itself as the fundamental weaknesses of the federal state, which became clear and obvious and on full display during the trucker crisis when Ottawa was stupefied. Well, not just Ottawa, right? Every level, Jim Watson, Doug Ford, and Justin Trudeau were like deer in headlights for weeks on end. You know, it took a young woman in Ottawa to finally, like, get up the courage to stand up to them and try and get a uh, class action suit going to, like, sort of shake people out of their their stupefaction. Like, they didn't know what to do, right? The Americans were literally, like, suggesting, maybe we need to fix this for you. The fact that, you know, all these people are still in power and have not lost their jobs over this is shocking to me.
0: I mean, and the conversation has shifted so completely away from this to Ukraine. Um, Yeah, and, and speaking of Ukraine, just briefly, how are you thinking through the crisis in Ukraine?
1: Oh, you know, I, I can't stand this. It's making me crazy. I've been trying to get worked on and teach and, you know, uh, hang out with my kids and exercise. And I've been doom scrolling now for like six weeks. Like, it's really bad. I actually like, I killed my Twitter account two years ago. My official one, the one under my name, because I found myself fighting with somebody while pushing my daughter on a swing. Right? I was like sitting there fighting and yelling at my daughter. And I was like, this is crazy. And so I took my own advice in the book and canceled my Twitter account, but you know, I have a burner account that I use to sort of, because Twitter is still useful for getting news. And I just sit there at night and I'm just like, yeah. and so when I think about it, I think it's awful. I don't have any great solutions to it. How it fits into my broader thesis, I'm not sure, except one of the things that it does, I mean, I wonder, and I don't know how much of it, something I need to talk to people about, Afghanistan collapsed and everyone kind of blamed the Americans and Biden for pulling out and what have you, right? One institution that sort of got away with not getting too much criticism was NATO, right? NATO ran the Afghan war for 15 years uh, when the Americans sort of handed it over to ISAF. And it's as much a NATO fiasco as it is an American fiasco. And if you look at how NATO performed over there, it wasn't very good. It was disorganized. It was incoherent. It was lack of coordination. And I wonder very much if Putin saw what NATO did there and saw how poorly he performed and liked what he saw. Saw NATO as a paper tiger, saw NATO as weak, saw NATO as you know, ineffectual, and saw that as uh, an opening for him to move into Ukraine, thinking you know, they can't do anything anyway. Now, there's signs that maybe NATO's getting its act together, EU's getting its act together, but the sheer degeneracy in Europe in particular about things like oil and gas and the, the pipelines to Russia and so on, I mean, it's a huge problem right? It's very degenerate. what has been going on. And mm. people are talking about, will we get serious? Uh, will we get serious now? I mean, we'll see. Uh, mm. it's, it seems after every major crisis, everyone's like, well, maybe we'll get serious, right? Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm waiting to see it.
0: <laughs> Meanwhile, Twitter, as you say, is a cesspool. It's a cesspool. <laughs> <and> <laughs> yeah, it's
1: just absolute cesspool.
0: Well, just to close, I mean, I wanted to close on a great piece that you wrote, Self-Help for Partisans, oh, for the Ottawa Citizen, and then reprinted in the line. What's your advice to us right now? I mean... <laughs>
1: You know, I did a thing on the agenda a few wh- a while ago and with, I wish I could remember her name, an American writer who'd written a similar piece about sort of, you know, how bad everything was in its days. And she blamed it all on woke uh, woke liberals and the, you know, colleges at like NYU and stuff, right? And she was like, oh, we just need to sort of just decide to be better. And it doesn't work that way, right? You can't just sort of decide individually to do things in the same way, like when you're in a traffic jam, you can't decide to not be in a traffic jam, right? You're in a collective situation. So the self-help for partisans piece, which I actually wrote like a long time ago, back when people were arguing over Stephen Harper, who seems like statesman-like and and, uh, level-headed in comparison to what's going on now, was basically, look, the problem with partisanship is in excessive partisanship right now is that it treats disagreement as not just reasonable, but unreasonable, right? It treats people you disagree with as fundamentally, not just wrong, but morally criminal. And you see it on both sides. And, you know, you see it with Justin Trudeau, you know, accusing people who don't want to get vaccines of being essentially misogynist and racist, right? Like, this is crazy, right? You can't talk that way about people. And so the advice that I give in the the thing is, like, you know, follow three basic rules, right? The principle of charity right? Assume your opponents are reasonable people. Like, like you, they love their children. They want to have quiet lives. They want to see the world, you know, expand and so on. Assume that their intentions are right, right? They might not be, but assume they are. Don't assume from the get-go that they're moral or criminal, right? But the big one is this thing called the, the ideological Turing test, which I stole from Brian Kaplan, American economist. And he says, you know, can you pass as someone from the other side? If you're a liberal, could you pass as a conservative? That is, could you restate their argument in a way that's persuasive to other conservatives? Most people can't, right? The sheer levels of caricature and bad faith and misinterpretation that goes on on social media, but also on talk radio and on news and everything is shocking. And so you know, if people could follow these rules, the world would be a better place, but there's no incentive for doing so, right? There's absolutely no incentive and it's because of the the collective action problems we're locked into psychologically, politically, and environmentally. So, you know, it was basically an exercise and here's how you can help, but it's kind of like saying, here's how you can help global warming, you know, like recycle, right? Like, (laughs) you can't, right? It's just do what you can, but it's not gonna do much. It's sort of (laughs) my advice, (laughs) hug your children.
0: well there you go
1: yeah (laughs) it's a uh, crazy time it is a crazy time and i'm here to bring the fun
0: well thanks so much for coming on today yeah it's my pleasure it's been fun talking lean out is hosted and produced by myself tara henley if you liked what you heard please consider subscribing to my Substack at tarahenley.substack.com.